Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. This is UXK. 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 I'm your host, Lee Allen Arredondo. Creativity. Sometimes it feels so elusive and we just can't find it when we need it. Other times we have an overabundance, more ideas than we know what to do with. Or then there's that creative work that you believe in, but you just can't get traction from others on. Whether you need to come up with ideas or sell those ideas or turn those ideas into a reality, it's not always easy and it's rarely straightforward. Author Scott Birkin calls it the dance of the possible, which is the title of his latest book, conveniently, and that's the subject of this week's show, creativity, more importantly, turning creativity into reality. And Scott should know, he's a best-selling author of seven books, countless articles, popular speaker, he writes and speaks on a variety of topics, but especially creativity and innovation, which is, of course, why I turned to him for this topic. Thanks, Scott, for joining me today. Hey, I'm happy to be here. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to this. I really enjoyed um, reading your most recent book, The Dance of the Possible, Completely Irreverent Guide to Creativity. So I wanted to start with that. Your This book deals with creativity really from beginning to end, starting with generating creative ideas and um, you know where they come from and how to how to get more of them. And I just wanted to begin with one of the first thoughts that I had when I originally started reading the book. I feel like many of the people in teams that I've worked with aren't necessarily lacking in creative ideas, but they just aren't necessarily getting them implemented. My question was, do you hear a lot of people complaining that they don't have enough creative ideas? Well, I think that it, the word creativity is a funny word, and uh, I was reluctant to write a book about this because it's, that word creativity and creative is beaten to death, and it means so many different things to so many different people that I almost I almost suggest to people that they don't even they, – they try to solve their problem without using that word or thinking that's the problem because anyone who's doing work of any kind, whether you're a designer or an engineer – you're always in the process of coming up with ideas for things and, and trying to convince people to do them. Whether you um, are an artist or a painter or a writer, that's just the nature of, of making things. It's just it's an essential part of um, how things work. I, I guess I'm rambling a bit here right off the bat, which is a major podcast uh, faux pas. So let me <laughs> let me back up and, and directly into your question. Um, yes, uh, there are people who feel that they are not creative. And that's largely based on the romantic notion that we grew up with, at least in American culture, that being creative is something that you're born with. And people have artistic talent or musical talent, and either you have it or you don't. And then when it comes to having a workplace situation where you're being told, oh, you have to generate ideas for something, there's a lot of panic that ensues for a lot of people. And that's why I think there's so many books and courses about what is a very natural process to some people. But for most people, it's a scary and um, concerning notion. I have to be creative. It's a, it, it feels like high pressure and stressful for a lot of people. Yeah. And then sometimes uh, people who, who are used to 
maybe feeling creative can can feel that stress or panic when they're not feeling it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like sometimes the creative idea is often where they break down is in the development kind of after you have the initial idea. And I mean, especially if it's a personal project, we have a tendency to wait until we until we feel inspired and creative, um, which just sometimes never happens on its own. Like you don't feel like writing or you don't feel like painting or whatever that creative project is. You actually talk about that a little bit in your book as well. Yeah, I, I do, because that's that's part of the romance of it, that in, in all the movies we see about creative work, the actual work of developing ideas is pretty boring. I mean, so I'm a writer. That's a big part of how I've made a living for the last last few years. And and everyone has romantic notions about what writing must be like. Oh, it must be so much so fun. And you just, you know, you have epiphanies. And and I'm like, no, if, if you had a camera watching me work every day, it's really boring. It's a guy typing and staring at the screen. There's no there's nothing exciting or dramatic about it. I have to show up every day and I have to generate ideas for things and refine ideas for things. And it really is just a kind of work. And I think that's a really good framework for thinking about any kind of creative task is that whether you're inspired or not, there's still going to be a pile of work that you have to do. I could have an idea right now in this conversation with you for a new web app that's going to you know, revolutionize um, to-do list management, you know, as if there aren't enough of those already. And let's say we had that idea. We talked, oh, it'd be great if it did this instead of check boxes, it'd be radio buttons or whatever. And that idea generation would take maybe 30 seconds to do. And then even if it's the most brilliant idea in the world, it's still going to take weeks or months of work to someone for someone to actually go and build it. That no matter how great the idea is, there's still there's still this pile of ordinary, regular-looking work that needs to be done to bring that idea into reality. And that's part of, I think, where designers and people who do user experience work, where they get frustrated because they want the idea itself. They believe the idea is so good that it should magically convince other people to want to go do more work, which goes against the basic notions of how human psychology works. Most people don't want more work, no matter how good your idea is. So one of the things that the book alludes to, it doesn't get into detail about, is that often the hardest part of doing creative work isn't the ideas or generating them or even finding motivation. It's just convincing other people to care about your idea at all, which is an entirely different skill set that most people are frustrated they have to also learn. I have a few questions right around that specifically um, that I want to get to. But um, before we get to that, because that is a really important piece of creative work, I know that, well, you started out saying the word creative is definitely loaded, but it's going to be impossible to have this conversation without <laughs> talking about saying the word creative or talking about creativity. So, <laughs> So whatever the audience believes creativity is, I guess that is open for debate. But, you know, you do say that creativity is not an accident and you talk about it as a discipline. And sometimes that discipline doesn't feel very creative, even though the end result, we would call that maybe a creative project. Mm -hmm. Right. But that process doesn't feel very creative. And so, you know, does having a process like that take the spontaneity out of creativity? I don't think so. I think um I, I chalked it up to be another romantic notion that somehow if you have a procedure that you do every day or a ritual or a habit, that it makes it robotic and that now the you, humanity and the, 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 the muse-like inspiration is going to disappear. 
the and what bears that out is just studying other creative workers. There's a there's a, a really good book. I reference it in the book. I reference it in my book called um, I think Daily Habits or Daily Rituals. And he went and cataloged Mason. I forget his last name, but um, I can give you the link to it. You can add it to the notes of the podcast if you like. He went and basically did the same thing that I did early in my career was let's go find out how did um, how did Hemingway work? What, what was his work practices like? How did Da Vinci work? How did what, what, were, what, what were their daily routines every day? What did that look like? And for most of them, I mean, the large majority of them, they were very disciplined and had procedures and practices they followed every day because that's the way you structure a working practice, that you you have these habits that help keep you motivated and take the um, the need to feel supremely inspired every day out of it. So I think that um, if you want to follow in the footsteps of whoever your creative heroes are in any field, it's not that hard to do a little bit of digging and find out, well, what were their daily practices like? How often did they write? How often did they read? If they're designers, how often do they sketch? Do they carry sketchbooks with them? How often do they use them? Do, like there are all these very simple questions that you can use to take advantage of what is already known about other people in your field that you think of as creative and to emulate some of those things. I don't. I, I use the word emulate carefully because everyone's individual practices, especially around something like creativity, are going to be different. And so we fall into this trap of, uh, oh, what did Da Vinci eat for breakfast? That's what I should have for breakfast then because if it worked for Da Vinci, it'll work for me. Which is completely absurd. Like we're all we're all we're all different. We all have different have different aptitudes. We all have different preferences. And part of what it takes to be successful at the, these kinds of work is having self awareness and to realize, you know, I'm more of a night person. I'm going to be more creative at night. So I have to have my hour of writing time or sketching time be at night. Or oh, I'm a morning person, so I have to make sure I get up before I go to work and have time that I can write in my journal or do some sketching. And that self-awareness really only comes about by having commitment and experimenting and having a journal and paying attention to which things you respond to. Let's talk a little more about the process. So in UX, we're really big on our design process. Um, product makers have a product development process. We've got lots of methodologies, agile, lean. How does creativity fit into a process? Well, it, it does. It, it, it depends. I think that um, let me give you my last answer where I was basically saying having a structure is helpful. It takes it takes the burden. It takes some of the psychological burden of showing up every day. It takes it. It makes it easier because there's a structure to to, to build on sort of like to build a house. You need you need a framework. This be a, a, you know, the, the the actual foundation of the house. It's, that's how you. To build something good and interesting, it has to be based on something that's structural. And I think the idea of any software development methodology is to provide that structure and make it so that the whole team is following the same one. And then it becomes easier to communicate at the right time, you know, what the right time is to offer a new idea when when you're going to have debate and discussion around it. Everyone kind of knows the cadence, the um, the rhythm of the, the project. But some some methods are followed poorly or the methods are designed with a goal other than really having a high quality work and from it from a design point of view process is a very tricky subject because there's a lot of secondary motivations why people promote or want to have a process i think sometimes for designers they like processes because if they are the ones who are defining the process 
it helps give them more power and more influence. So I've seen I've seen cases where I think process as a team can be very helpful because it, again everyone's following the same drumbeat. But there's also situations where a process can be detrimental because people are trying to be religious about the process over seeing how it affects, how it helps or hurts the end result. Right. There are a lot of things going into play here besides just creativity. But to your earlier point, and you talk about this a little bit at the end of the book, but maybe you could expand on this a bit. What is your advice for someone who wants techniques for getting traction for their creative ideas at work or moving their ideas up the chain? Well, it's uh, designers should be should be really good at this. Often, often we're terrible at it, but we should be really good because it's all about human behavior. It's all about psychology. And if I have an idea and in order to get it built, I need you, the developer, or you, the client, or you, the executive, to give me resources for it, then there's some basic uh, psychological playbook that anyone who's thinking it through can could can can think about. I mean, the first thing is well. What is what's the engineer's goal? Goal? What's how's it, how's the engineer going to get promoted this year? Uh, what's my manager's promotion going to look like this year? Uh, my client, what is their big goal for the year? So then, if I know what the person I'm pitching to's goals are, then I have to think first: How does my idea, this thing I want, fit into what they want? And if I can find a Venn diagram overlapping what I want and what they want, that's my pitch. And in order to do that, I have to know. I have to do some homework about who I'm pitching to. The, 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 the common pattern is since creativity and coming up with ideas is a very personal experience that as a designer, I may see a problem, think about it and work on it on my own, in my head, come up with the idea. Oh, I'm excited. I got this idea. I think I've solved the problem. And then when we go to pitch people coming from the point of view of, I'm excited about my idea. And that doesn't really lead to effective pitching because most of the time, no one really cares about why you're excited about some random idea. But if you put in a framework of, hey, I know that your goal is you're trying to solve X. Well, let me tell you about this thing I just came up with, which I think will help you solve your problem. That's a very different kind of conversation. Yeah, it's funny. That's a super common theme, I would say, just in the last three episodes of this podcast alone. Like you said, we should be really good at this because we are human-centered, except that we often forget about the humans that we're <laughs> working with as, you know, being, you know, part of that process. And it is, it's really common. Um, and we're not all great at it. I don't think it's necessarily something that we're naturally, you know, inclined towards just because we're great designers or researchers to be better team players. No, no, I think it's, um, I mean, definitely it's, I think design culture has come a long way in understanding how teams work and how to be more effective in getting the design and user experience knowledge that we have through the team and out into the product. But it is still, a, I think it's still a common stereotype that designers like to talk about being human-centered and being the, the captains of empathy. And you put them in a high-powered meeting where something big is at stake and this is not a game that they like to play or that they're comfortable playing. But tying it back around to some of the, your, your earlier questions, I think a lot of what people chalk up to being more creative is really about learning how to be more persuasive and learning how to find, you can come up with an idea, but now how do you put it in a context that anyone else will care about it at all? That's a different kind of thinking and a different kind of communication skill. 
Yeah. Well, back to um, generating creativity, and um, it, that is something that as a manager, I have in the past wanted to be able to help people on my team be more creative for managers or team leads. How could they support their teams to generate more creativity? Well, the the, the simple thing is just, is really just motivation. All the literature, or at least most of the literature about what goes on in our brain or psychology when we are generating ideas is very simple, that we've evolved to have these very, very well-developed problem-solving skills. It's just natural. Any functioning human being who has a job and can get to, to work and get home and make dinner, we have the ability to generate ideas for things. We just do it. So then it becomes a question of motivation. The joke that I like to tell about uh, idea generation is that if you were locked in a closet and like not not like for fun, like it wasn't just so so like so because <laughs> people usually go into closets to, for fun. Well, I do. <laughs> I, I have a closet thing. Well, I don't want to get into that. It's wrong wrong story for this for your podcast. But um, okay, different podcast. Different podcast. But uh, if let's say you're in a hotel room in a strange city and somehow you manage to lock yourself in the hotel room closet, and you're not feeling very creative that day, but you're locked in the closet. And your phone is outside on the bed. Um, what would you do? Would you just give up? No. Every human being would start getting really creative and trying to figure out how to get out of the closet. You'd use your hand. It's dark in there, so you can't see. You put your hands in the corners. Can you find where the hinges are? Can you reach around through the maybe the crack in the door to reach the handle? You do a lot of things that you have a low belief, low percentage belief it's going to work, 10%, 20%, because that's all that you have. You're going to be creative and coming up with ideas for ways to get out. You're going to yell. You're going to scream. You're going to knock on the door, knock on the wall, thinking maybe that the room next door can hear you. We are just wired to be creative. If you are suitably motivated, and this, the closet being a, a jokey example of this, if you are suitably motivated as a human being, you will come up with ideas to solve the problem that you face. The problem is that often in life we're not suitably motivated or we have too much fear and, and inhibitions to say our creative idea. So to answer your question, as a manager, I have to make my team suitably motivated. That could be as simple as assigning the right projects to the right people, that maybe Sally likes working on, I don't know, web navigation projects, and currently she's working on a settings dialogue box, and I simply have her on the wrong kind of work to get her to be really motivated to work on it. But as a manager, I'm thinking, what, kind of work, what kind of problem to solve with this employee on my team be most likely to be suitably motivated, they're going to be generating those ideas. And the second piece, which is shorter, I promise, the second piece is, um, is that uh, I create an environment as a manager that is genuinely collaborative and supportive, that we can get, uh, when my team is together at the whiteboard and we're starting to, to brainstorm, although that word is another word that gets abused all over the place, we're starting to generate ideas together, that I, as the manager, create the right tone, that when someone says an idea that I don't think is that great, that I don't shut it down right away, I ask qualifying questions, or I try to, I use the improv technique of yes and, how can we build on this? And I create an environment where everyone sees that it's okay to suggest ideas you're not sure about. It's okay to say things that are a little strange or to ask weird questions because we're trying to poke at false constraints. And I can create an environment where it's more natural for people to express what's in their minds instead of being afraid of being judged or shut down for saying what they have to say. 
I I love that you brought up the improv because we, that was our last episode that just came out. Um, the previous episode was about improv and empathy. It was specifically around using improv techniques around generating more empathy and I guess creativity. And it also seems like a much better way to get your team to collaborate than locking them in a closet. <laughs> I would say definitely. Yeah, I think there might be an HR violation in locking people in, in places. I, I'm not <laughs> recommending that literally for all of your listeners out there. Well, Scott on that podcast said to lock them in the closet. Yeah. So sorry. You're going to be well known for your advice for managers. <laughs> yes. Um, Well, back to your book, it's a pretty quick read, um, but there's so much advice on all the all the aspects related to being creative is there any part in particular that you've found really resonates with a lot of people since you published the book? The one, one of the favorite little things, there's, it's a little thing. I don't, there's only one chapter in the book. It's actually purely about idea generation. Cause I don't, in all my years teaching this stuff, I don't think idea generation is really all that hard. It's what you do with the, the seeds of the ideas once you get them. But in that chapter, there is a technique called the opposite game which is one, it's one of my favorite things to teach. When people read the book, they, they all, like, it's one of the first things people mention. And the opposite game is very simple. Often in brainstorming situations in workplaces, people show up and, oh, we have to come, come up with ideas to improve revenue by 20% or some very legitimate and very clear positive goal. But there's often a lot of politics in these rooms. If there's 10 people there, 12 people there, if your boss is there, everyone's sensitive to who is listening. And people, people get very inhibited very quickly. So the opposite game is simple, that whatever your goal is, let's say the goal is to improve website traffic by 20%, that you start off first by doing the opposite. You spend 10 minutes with the goal of, let's come up with ideas for how we can reduce traffic by 20%, which sounds juvenile and kind of ridiculous, but that's part of the point, that once you start doing that and come up with terrible ideas, you know, make it so the website crashes or make the website take six minutes to load. And once you start doing that, People, people's inhibitions go away because it's safe, that the idea is to be bad. So people, there's a different mindset that they enter into quite joyously about making the thing be worse. And as you do that, people will build in each other's ideas, they'll be collaborating and there'll be, be one-offs of other people's ideas and the pace will go really fast because it's fun and people will be laughing. And then after five or six minutes, it'll peter out, but you've now created the right kind of group atmosphere and safety and high morale because people have been making each other laugh to transition into going the the, the, the positive way. And that's like a great warm-up exercise to do in almost any situation to get people in the right mindset for generating good ideas. Yeah, I've seen that in action. I actually participated in a session that started out that way, and I agree. I really liked the uh, low – there was very low stakes at that point. Yes, there's also something fun. It's like it's like a taboo thing that most of your time in a job, in a company, everyone's spending all their time trying to make things better. And just to have a five-minute window where you can like just tear the thing apart is something very therapeutic and cathartic about it that I've never – I've yet to try this game with groups of people, even people – you know, companies or organizations and have it fail. It almost – it always works and people are laughing and they're surprised at how much fun it is. So – That'd be the number one thing. Oh, awesome. All right. Well, now I think we're going to um, segue into our little uh, mini mentoring session. So this is a question that I've gotten from a designer 
and uh, related to the subject that we're talking about. Now, in this case, I actually found this question on Quora. Okay. I, I always say that wrong. Quora. Yeah, I never know how to say it either. That's, yeah. I bet there's a question on there. How do you pronounce Quora? <laughs> there's 10 different answers. <laughs> um, so this came from Anonymous. So I'm going to name this person Pat. Okay. Because that could be either a woman or a man. All right. So Pat says... How do I get my bosses to consider my creative work and ideas for change? And Pat goes on to say, I do design and HTML work for an environmental nonprofit. Uh, Pat says they don't want to leave their job. Uh, they want to continue working there, but they want to be able to do more creative and interesting work. So here's the example. I got a meeting scheduled to show off a new design I created for our email appeals. I made it mobile responsive and took into account best practices. I prepared so much for this meeting, and on the day of, the meeting was canceled without explanations. Turns out they wanted the third-party vendor to do it. They didn't even want to take the time to look at what I had already done. They just assumed the third party would do it better. And that type of thing has happened a few different times to the point that I just gave up. So now I'm just bored all day, plugging away into the templates and letting the third party vendor do all the creative work. So Pat's looking for an approach that they had not thought of yet to get people to take Pat seriously and get moved into a more interesting and creative role. Okay. Yeah. What are your thoughts? Well, um, I have a, a few thoughts there. One... Nonprofits are notorious for having difficult politics. So uh, some of this is not uncommon in nonprofit groups. Everyone's a volunteer or there's a lot of volunteers. And how work gets chosen, how it gets prioritized can often be very chaotic and very political. So that's a first note about knowing the landscape that you're on, that um, some places are just more conservative than others. They don't have the confidence to do that kind of work in-house. You should know where you are and set your expectations accordingly. Second, and this is the more practical bit of advice, is that in that, the way that question is worded, there's a lot of they's in there. And that that reflects a, a um, lack of precision in how Pat is aiming her efforts or his efforts. They means this amorphous group that could be three people. It could be 10 people. It could be who knows. Uh, you can't convince these very easily because you're it's sort of like this notion I had when I first started my career that you show up at meetings and that's where you convince people of things. Meetings is not where, not where you convince people of things. You convince people of things by talking to them one on one before the meeting and trying to get their feedback on your idea before the meeting. So you walk into the meeting know who, knowing who your allies are and who's going to support you in the conversation. So my advice for Pat would be you need to break it down. Who is the actual individual person who's deciding what work is third party and what work is done in-house? That's the person who is making the decision. That's the person you need to learn how to pitch. Now, if that person turns out to be too senior, maybe they're the group director and you don't talk to them that often, then you need to think of who your intermediary is. Maybe you have a, there's a lead or maybe there's a more senior person that you have a good relationship with that you can work with them on how to pitch the decision maker and work as a duo that the two of you say, hey, we're, we want to pitch you on why we should do this work in-house. And then you're bringing an ally to that conversation. And so Pat needs to have much more precision at breaking down who the decision makers are 
and then investing and earning a reputation with that person for why these other kinds of work, which generally are not approved, should be approved on a trial basis for Pat. And it should be something small. Maybe this redesign of the email stuff she was doing was too ambitious. She needs to pick something really small, get approval to do it, do a great job on it, and then come back the next time and say, hey, I did a great job on this. I'm proposing the next thing it's going to be a little bit bigger. And that's how you change the perception of what you can do. And eventually, if you're successful, change the culture of what kinds of creative work are, are supported and encouraged. Yeah, I think that's great advice. And I knew that you would bring up the, the pre-meeting pitch because I've been involved in a workshop where you specifically <laughs> talked about that as a and But it's so true. And it's funny to me um, how often I have been mentoring someone who's who's having, you know, kind of some problems in getting ideas up the chain, basically, and has never really considered this idea of your personal relationship with the people who are the decision makers or your allies to those people and talking to them before the meeting, the pre-meeting pitch. Yeah, I think, you know, I hadn't thought of this before. I think there's um, this is an inherent bias towards extroversion in workplaces that the more people that you know and you have a basic rapport with enough that you can drop by their office and say, hey, I got this thing. Can, can I get your feedback on it real quick? The more people that you that you have that relationship with, that's an advantage when you are trying to make things happen. And if you are more introverted and you have fewer of those relationships, it makes it a little bit harder uh, because you just don't have access to as many people to get that kind of influence. I don't know. I think some workplaces can do a better job than others in incorporating ideas and from from more introverted people for having other mechanisms by which this stuff happens. But at the end of the day, it's there's legwork involved. Someone has to go before the meeting and realize I need I need Sally's approval in the meeting. So I got to I got to earn her trust and support before I ever pitch this to the group. Mm-hmm. And then there's, this is extra, it feels to some designers like extra work. Why should I have to go and pitch Sally and Bob? Why should, I'm the designer, this is my idea. There's, a, there's that arrogance that comes into play sometimes. It's beneath you to have to pitch. And then, uh, but from all the studies that I've done and reading about how great work happens, there's always someone who does that like work. There's always someone who's willing to pitch and go down the hall door to door and talk to people and get their feedback. And um, it's really exceptionally rare that anyone in any organization has ideas that are so good that the ideas convince people all on their own. Yeah, it's true that I hear a lot of designers often say things like, why can't they just let us do our job? Yeah, That's so common. Well, <laughs> you know what, though, I think there's, I, I, like, there's a part of it that believes in that. It's just that you only get that kind of respect after it's been earned. Mm-hmm. And that's not, that's not, it's not anything specific to designers. I think that's true for almost any role. Exactly. Uh, a lot of my career was as a PM and uh, I didn't have that much more granted authority than anyone else did. But over time by earning people's trust, eventually it reached a point where if I proposed something, it had a lot of clout because of my history of convincing people of why my smaller earlier ideas had merit. Well, I think we've got some great ideas for Pat. Understand where you are, first of all. Understand what your expectations should be. And then focus your efforts on the right person. Like, who are you pitching to? And making sure that 
that is the person who's making decisions or an ally to that person if that person's too high up. And then breaking it down to smaller sizes, going step by step, I think is a, is a really good point. You kind of look at the bigger picture and develop a plan of smaller steps to get you there. If your goal is this, you know, new email template, then maybe start with tweaks to an existing one or something like that. Yeah. The, the other thing you just reminded me of in there is uh, to a part of looking around is, is there anyone in the entire organization that's successful at doing what Pat would describe as creative work? I mean, if there's no one, that's a warning sign that this organization is just really not a place where this stuff will happen. But if there is someone who's doing creative work, that's someone you want to become friends with, at least to understand how they how did they make that happen? What what did they do to earn that kind of reputation where they could do creative work? That's how you see, you find your your potential allies. Someone who's already having the impact that you want. And every culture is different, so you're going to learn the secrets of your culture from that person rather than from some book or some some author blabbing on uh, some podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Although it never hurts to listen to. It never it, it never hurts, but a lot of this <laughs> stuff is local, and you know you, yeah. you get you get a, a playbook, but then you're going to have to do the actual work in your organization to sort it out. Well, that's all great advice for a lot of us. So I want to thank you very much, Scott. Oh, before we go, how can people find out more about you? Where can they find you or connect with you? I'm easy. My name is Scott Birkin. That's my website, scottbirkin.com, and on Twitter. I am just my last name, Birkin, B-E-R-K-U-N. All right. I want to thank you so much, Scott. This has been a lot of fun. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. And, and Pat, wherever you are, good luck to you. All right. Thanks a lot, Scott. Okay. Well, we all struggle with creative problems at some point, whether it's at the idea stage or sustaining interest in a good idea, turning an idea into reality or selling that idea to others. Like Scott said, there isn't a one-size-fits-all approach that is going to work for everyone in every case, not even for the same person in every case. Sometimes you have to walk away for a while and come back to it to move forward. Sometimes the only thing that will work is to just keep banging at something to move through the resistance, whether it's internal or external. I think it's kind of like a screwdriver, you know, those screwdrivers that have lots of different um, heads that you can put at the top. I love those things. For some reason, I'm just like um, addicted to them. I think I, I have like four or five. I don't know. I need them in every room, it seems like. But anyway, sometimes you have to try different sizes. You have to try, you know, a whole bunch of different sizes to see which one is going to fit. And then after you have more experience with using this tool... You can tell by looking at the screw which size screwdriver head you need to use. So my point is, the more tools you have in your toolbox, the more likely you'll be to find the right one when you need it. And I think that's what I like about Scott's book, The Dance of the Possible, because there are multiple suggestions and approaches, but they're all centered on the cycle of creativity. So you can find links to resources that we talked about and probably more that we didn't talk about on the show notes at uxcake.co. And thanks so much for joining me for another slice of UX Cake. And I can't wait to talk to you again next week.